Gracious God and Father, you promise that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. I can't recall exactly who said it. I don't know if it was uh, Mark Twain or Will Rogers or someone else. Uh, but it goes like this. When the world comes to an end, I want to be in Cincinnati because there everything happens 10 years later. Now, the truth is, I, I'm a lot more concerned about my personal world coming to an end than about the world at large coming to an end. By personal world, I mean the people I know, the places that are familiar to me, the places I've grown to love, and the experiences I've shared. I, I want more of those experiences. I don't want my world to end. The death occurs, divorce happens, there are accidents, natural disasters, and so on. And those things pass away. The world that I knew is no more. When someone dies, when someone leaves, what I knew was gone. My friends, the disciples, in our gospel lesson for today, are about to discover that truth once again. I direct your attention on the back of your bulletin to Mark 13, verse 1. And as he, this is Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I think all of us can identify with that. I think all of us are impressed with bricks and mortar. You know, we live in Columbus, Indiana, after all, known for its architecture, if you're into that. It's impressive, I guess. And with regard to the temple in Jerusalem, what I read is that it was made of white marble. It was trimmed in gold. And to look upon the temple on a sunny day, and there are a lot of sunny days in Jerusalem, it's like looking at a snow-capped mountain. Impressive. It's impressive. Reminds me of looking through magazines. I know when before we would buy a home, we would look through House Beautiful, we would look through all kinds of literature featuring beautiful homes. And I, I refer to it as uh, kind of real estate porn. You know, it's, it just draws you in, right? And um, it captivates you. That's the way bricks and mortar are with us. We're impressed with that kind of stuff. And then Jesus comes along, and he just flattens it all. And he says this in verse 2. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that was literally fulfilled less than a generation later, A.D. 70. The Romans 
flattened the temple and most of Jerusalem. And for the disciples, listening to this, listening to the words of Jesus, it's like their world coming to an end. That temple and the holy city was the beating heart of their faith. It was the beating heart of Judaism. The lodestone that they were attracted to several times a year for the great feasts. It was the place of sacrifice for sins. It was the place of God's presence where God would meet his people in a gracious and forgiving way. It meant everything to them. It was patriotism, it was religion, all rolled into one. And Jesus comes along and says, it's all going to leave. It's going to be over. You're not going to see it anymore. So, Roman numeral number one, with their world ending, what comfort do these disciples have? What comfort do they have? Point A, well, they have Jesus. And he is the true temple of God. Remember in John chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Speaking of the temple of his body, he's the fulfillment of the temple. Jesus is saying, in effect, this earthly temple that you see, these magnificent stones, these beautiful buildings, it's obsolete. It's obsolete because the one true sacrifice for sins has arrived. The person of our Lord Jesus. All the other sacrifices that took place in the temple were merely shadows of what was coming. And once you have what produced the shadow, the shadow's nothing. You have the reality, the one true sacrifice for the sins of the world in the person of Jesus Christ. The temple was not only obsolete, it was becoming a stumbling block to the people. They began to superstitiously rely upon the temple as their safeguard against invasion when, I don't know why they would think that way, because the temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. God did it once. He can do it again. They relied on that structure as sort of an insurance policy. Oh, they might forget about God for a while. They could always repent later, but they have the insurance policy. God disabused them of that notion. He removed the stumbling block. So they have the true temple. What the prophets had looked forward to has arrived. And point B, these very disciples, they embody Jesus. They embody him. Look at verse 9. Be on your guard, Jesus says, for they will deliver you over to the councils. Well, what did they do to Jesus? Judas delivered him over to the Jewish ruling council. That's what happened to Jesus. The same thing will happen to the disciples. They embody Jesus. And you'll be beaten in synagogues. What did they do to Jesus? He was beaten. And you will stand before governors and kings. Well, for, before whom did Jesus stand? The governor, Pontius Pilate, and the sort of mini-king, Herod Antipas, 
And then verse 13, and you'll be hated by all for my namesake. What did Jesus say in John 15? Don't be surprised if they hate you because they hated me first. The world hated me first. You see, everything that Jesus will experience, the disciples themselves will experience. The world will treat them, treat us, in the same way. They and we embody Jesus. We are his presence in the world, like it or not. Cracked pots though we are, he honors us in this way. We're in good company when these things happen. I remember what St. Paul wrote in Philippians 3. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You see, when we suffer with the Lord, we are in fellowship with the Lord. We experience what he experienced. And shared experience is really at the heart of knowing someone. How many times do you read something in Scripture, and then all of a sudden, maybe several days down the road, you, you experience what Scripture just said, what you read earlier? It's like that. We share his experience in the world, the rejection, the mockery, and so on. And we know him through these things, even through these things. So, Roman numeral two, how do disciples endure the loss of all things? How do we endure to the end? When, when our world comes crashing down, when someone passes away or leaves us, when we're uprooted from what we knew and thrown over to some other location, how do we endure? Well, point A, endurance is a virtue. It's a Christian virtue. It's talked about a lot in scripture. Jesus talked about it a lot. So did the apostles. Endurance is a virtue. And you know what a virtue is? It's something that can be said of God that he also instills in you and me. It's a quality, a characteristic of God that he graciously instills in you and me. Verse 13b, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, will be saved. Someone once said that Christian life's not a sprint, it's a marathon, and you run a marathon differently than you run a sprint. We are not durable by nature. We tend to wilt under pressure. We're not patient by nature, we're not enduring by nature. And yet God in his grace is able to make us so. He's able to make us so. How does he do that? Point B, God creates endurance in you and me by his word. By his word. And in fact, our gospel reading for today, when, when he tells you, when Jesus tells you in advance what's going to happen, and we look back on it, we see it as fulfilled in the apostles' lives. It builds confidence in us that we have fellowship with them. When Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved, he's instilling endurance in you through his word. He's creating it. God creates endurance in us by his word, and that equals the gospel, the good news of our forgiveness. And that equals his love. 
I cite John 13, where Peter boldly says that he will fight for his Lord. He will never leave or forsake his Lord. And Jesus corrects him and he says, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. But Peter doesn't believe it until he does it. But then we look ahead to John 21. And what does the Lord do? Three times he forgives him. He restores him. That restoration is unconditional love. It's, it's love that Peter cannot lose because it is Christ's love for him. Feed my sheep, tend my flock, care for my lambs. He reinstates him, he forgives him. Just as he reinstates you in your various vocations, your callings in daily life, you are the head of the home. You are the child. You are the employer, the employee. Forgiven by the Lord, experiencing his love, you now love him in return. And point B1, love endures all things. St. Paul reminds us of that, 1 Corinthians 13. Love endures all things. If you love someone, you'll go to hell and back for them. Love is the most powerful motivation there is. It overcomes fear. Love does that. And it's the love that is created in us by God's love for us in Christ. That's where it comes from. It, that's, that's its source. And so the point here, number two, remove your gaze from what you're losing and fix your gaze on what you're gaining. That's key to endurance. You see, we, we wilt under pressure when we maintain our focus on what's passing away. That's scary. It's frightening. It frightens all of us. And the admonition in Scripture is take your eyes off of what you're losing and fix your eyes on what you're gaining. And I've quoted Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 here, which I think is key to understanding our gospel lesson. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and who are these witnesses surrounding us? They are the people who have struggled in the same way you and I struggle. They've experienced hardship. They had to endure in the face of difficulty. You read about it in Hebrews 11. Since we have all of these people as examples to us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and it does, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, so how do we run with endurance the race that is set before us? Well, he doesn't leave us to wonder. He tells us in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And the Greek phrase there for to fix your eyes means take your eyes off of everything else that is a distraction, everything else that you're losing, and focus on Jesus. Focus on him, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Well, what was that joy? That joy is you and me. And I, I bring to your remembrance Luke 15, where we read again and again, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who think they don't need to repent. See, 
That's the joy that the Lord experiences, knowing that you will believe and come to Christ. Despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, okay, focus on him, maintain your eyes there. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, so that you will endure. The key to endurance is Christ crucified for you and for the world. Now, don't ask me how that works. I just know it does. I remember when uh, I was going through a kind of a tough time and Harriet purchased a picture of Jesus in the garden praying and Jesus is kind of weak and he's, he is uh, being supported by an angel and we read that in Luke, I think, Luke 24, maybe that an angel appeared strengthening him. Okay? Our Lord needed strengthening and, and if he needed strengthening, you better believe you and I do as well. And here's, here's my point. When I'm feeling low or I'm feeling sorry for myself, I'm feeling alone and empty, I think of that picture. Or if I'm, if I'm in the bedroom, I look at that picture. And there's something about seeing Christ for me, suffering. There's something about seeing him in his weakness that gives me strength. Again, I can't explain it. I just know it's real. It's like so many things about our gracious God. Who can really understand it? We simply believe it. We simply believe it. Someone once said, it's not the nails that held him to the cross, it was love. Love for you, for me, for all the unworthy. We're not durable by nature. We will too easily under pressure. But we have the suffering and dying Christ. He's the one we have. I know some of us here today have experienced significant loss. We have experienced aloneness. And I think that's one of the greatest fears we have, is the fear of being alone. It happens to all of us sooner or later. But I want you to know this, that our Lord knows what aloneness is. He was alone in the garden. He was alone when he was mocked and beaten. He was alone on the cross for you and for me. And somehow, the grace of God, his aloneness, creates in us the strength to continue and to go forward, following him and keeping our gaze focused on him, who is our strength. I, I recall a story, it was a true story about a, a minister 
this was a Good Friday sermon he preached with very few words. There was a large picture of Jesus, a life-size picture of Jesus hanging up in the front of the sanctuary, uh, Christ crucified. And the lights in the sanctuary were turned down low and the minister took a small light, a lantern, and he climbed a ladder and he illuminated one hand of Jesus, pierced by the nail. He climbed down the ladder, moved it over, climbed up, he illuminated the other hand, pierced by the nail. He climbed down the ladder, moved it to the side of our Lord, climbed the ladder, illuminated the pierced side of our Lord, and then he went down the ladder and illuminated the nail piercing our Lord's feet. And he turned to the congregation and he said, all this he did for you. And that was it. That was the sermon. All this he did to you, for you. My friends, here's my point. When you consider his wounds, when you consider what he did for you, not only will you be empowered to endure all things for his sake, but you will gladly do so for his sake. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand and sing the offertory, page 192. Please be seated. <laughs> 